This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Thursday. And uh, Daphne, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited. For, I always say that, but um, I, I'm very excited to to have on our, our guest. Actually, you know, I, I trained where Dr. Saxon House trained. And so uh. my entire training, I heard about um, what a wonderful uh, fellow, colleague, <laughs> researcher Dr. Saxon House was. Can uh, you give us his bio? Okay, fine. Dr. Saxon House is an associate professor in the Division of Neonatology at Levine Children's Hospital, um, Wake Forest School of Medicine. He is currently the co-director of the Neonatal Thrombosis Center at Levine Children's Hospital. And the center is an active participant in the Apaxaban Neonatal Cohort Trial. Dr. Saxon House is also part of the FNAIT International Registry. He's the medical director for the PCVC team in the NICU. He also serves as the Associate Director for the Specialty Review in Perinatology 2.0. And his focus of research uh, during fellowship and faculty tenure at the University of Florida was neonatal thrombocytopenia, neonatal platelet function, and neonatal coagulation. Um, Now, um, he's an active participant in the Hemorrhagic Risk Assessment in Thrombocytopenia Study, NeoHAT Study, and Antibiotic Safety in Infants with Complicated Intra-Abdominal Infections. So, um, it's a privilege to speak to Ah, you today. Yeah, (laughs) yes, it is. Welcome to the show, Dr. Saxonhaus. Thank you for making the time. Sure. Thank you for uh, asking me to be here. No, thank you. And and so to this week, we're talking about red blood cell transfusion, and we wanted to um, ask you uh, a few questions, I guess, related to this topic. And um, I guess the place where we want to start maybe is a lot of people are asking always, like, what is your transfusion protocol? What are your transfusion mm-hmm. guidelines? And then that question is inevit- inevitably followed by, well, should we even have transfusion guidelines? And so I guess my question to you is, is what are, in your opinion, some of the benefits and some of the disadvantages of of establishing local, or even maybe bigger than local, mm-hmm. but guidelines in and around transfusions? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely support having guidelines. Um, like where I am right now at Levine Children's, you know, we have our unit plus lots of satellite units, and they all pretty much follow our guidelines. So we've mm-hmm. established as a sort of department or division, as you will, that we have guidelines. And and the reason I think it's important is it just creates consensus among colleagues that they're not absolute. They're not, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to follow these black and white, um, but Mm -hmm. they allow you and they also avoid confusion with families. You know, you have somebody Mm -hmm. come on one day and they're like, oh, the hemoglobin's 8.5. We're fine. Then the next like, oh my God, the hemoglobin's 8.5. We have to transfuse. (laughs) And the parents are like, what are you talking about? This person yesterday (laughs) just said we're fine. So I think they're really important because they provide the, again, the family and clinicians, your practitioners, uh, whether they nurse practitioners, PAs, residents, sort of just guidelines of when should we consider giving blood to this patient. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think they're real important. The again, is there perfect data to support what those guidelines should be? No, but you can take the pint trial, you can take the top trial, 
and use those to the best. And that's what our center did is we simply, we did a very big, what we call practice parameters, looking at both the pint and the top trials. And then mm-hmm. we crafted our guidelines based on the data that was from there. And we created guidelines using more of the, I think, restrictive, or will you say conservative thresholds. And it just allows us to have those guidelines in place. And I, I think we have definitely improved in terms of how we're, who we're giving blood to, when we're giving blood and the families, there's just no confusion or disagreements. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so in the end, you asked, what are the disadvantages? And, and, and that's sort of what I alluded to was sometimes people see this as, oh my goodness, it's black and white. This baby is 0.1 below the mm-hmm. transfusion threshold. We have to give blood and they don't mm. take into account the other factors. So that's the, I think the biggest downfall is that people, when they hear the word guidelines, they think they are laws. And right. that's the important thing. Guidelines are not laws. They are simply recommendations during that current clinical situation that you stop, analyze your guidelines, and decide whether or not the baby needs blood. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you alluded to about how blood transfusions can be kind of stressful for, for families. I find that no matter what's going on with uh, their baby, when a baby needs a transfusion, it's still like a critical event for families. Um, and, you know, given the debate around when is the right time to transfuse, um, I, I wonder if you can speak to to that. How do you counsel families? And 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 admittedly, sometimes we don't counsel families, right? We say there's a blood transfusion today or your baby already got a blood transfusion yeah, the, 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 today. So, um, so many times the parents signed the blood transfusion consent right. form on admission. Mm-hmm. And and then they they the baby sometimes get the transfusion even without having a discussion uh, yeah. beforehand. So it's correct. It's, yeah, it happens commonly. Yeah. So again, I you again, and you mentioned very good points there. These are not benign. They have risks. Mm-hmm. There's no question. And mm-hmm. especially um, when I was at Florida, and I don't, there was the history of when you know HIV was out, and mm. people would document in the charts. And this was probably I think it was the late '80s. We're just going to tank the baby up before they go home. We're just going to give them a little blood boost so they're fine. And all of a sudden, kids were testing positive for HIV and lawsuits started happening. So that's where I think people started saying, okay, now we need to really analyze who we're giving blood to, explain the risks, benefits. So what, as you said, you get the consent. It's a lot easier to get consent when you have a 24-week baby in the first six hours of life. The parents like, do whatever you can to save my baby. Oh, by the way, baby needs a blood transfusion, so they're not going to question it. And there's no issues there. Or the baby that comes in for PPHN, pre-ECMO candidate, hemoglobin's 10, you're like, we really need to give blood. A lot easier to give consent than it is to do that when the baby's three weeks old on a nasal cannula and the hemoglobin's 7.5 mm-hmm. and looks great. So I always tell the parents there are risks. Uh, if you look at the viral risks, again, the, this blood is tested through every means known. Of course, there is always that unknown virus that can present itself years down the road. But every blood transfusion that we give to a baby, we discuss it, we think about it, and the benefits mm-hmm. have to far outweigh the risks. So that's what I always tell the parents, and that's when I ask for consent. Uh, explain the risks and tell them, look, I'm doing this because I think your baby's going to have a better outcome. I'm not doing this just to give them, a, just to, as mm-hmm. I hate the word tank them up. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm giving them because I'm trying to improve their oxygen carrying capacity. If you do your formulas, increasing the hemoglobin is the best way to get oxygen or at least, you know, oxygen to the tissues. You can't do it if the hemoglobin's too low. And if the baby's having symptoms, not growing, 
the benefits far outweigh the risks. So, and right. every time I give blood, we will always let the family know. We don't just do mm-hmm. it and then say, oh, by the way, we gave it. We will either mm-hmm. call them or try to get in touch with them, leave a message and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think this is, this, is, this is great. Yeah, because sometimes uh, we become numb, I think, to transfusion. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we're ordering it like it's, it's sucrose and it's, and, it's, and it's not. And it's good to remember that. The other um, thing, sorry, just the mm-hmm. other thing I think no, it's please, go very ahead. important to do and I will do this and I think I drive people crazy is I will always, if the baby in my note, I will say baby was given blood today and why I gave it. Mm-hmm. Because if it mm-hmm. ever comes back, baby has a complication or something happens, they're going to look and say, why'd you give blood? And if it just says baby got blood today, see guidelines, you know, that's not going to cut it. You have to say, you know, baby is currently on, let's just say, give the reason it's a two week old, 26 week baby who's on NIV, uh, or let's say a NIV, in non-invasive NAVA, 30% oxygen, having about five spells per day and the hemoglobin's nine. Uh, and you do a retic and it's one. You would say the baby is not producing blood. We feel the hemoglobin's going to get to a lower level. We're concerned that it will cause much more symptoms. Baby is currently mild symptomatic, feel that baby would benefit from blood. So we're giving PAC cells today. I think that just, Mm -hmm. it lets somebody who reads that note know what you were thinking and why you're giving it. I think that's Mm -hmm. very key too, is always give a reason why uh, in your documentation, because that also sort of prevents any questions that could come up later. Yeah, Very helpful. I agree. That's 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 a great point. Um, the the last question we we wanted to go over obviously is since we have a lot of of young trainees and 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 uh, young career neonatologists and even older career neonatologists, but for people who are interested in the field of transfusion medicine in neonatology specifically. Um, Last year, we saw, uh, not last year, I guess a year and a half ago, we saw the publication of the top trial. We saw the publication of um, of the ethno trial. And and so in your opinion today, where, where do the gaps in knowledge when it comes to transfusion medicine lie? And where do you think uh, people should devote their time in terms of research and investigation in order to answer maybe some lingering questions in that field? Yeah, I think... The two big things that come to my mind, I think it's a no-brainer, a baby that's very sick, that has a low hemoglobin, needs blood. I think we all mm-hmm. can establish that that's, it, it, it's yeah, just, it, it, there's no, you know, congenital heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, sepsis, no question, oxygen, uh, hemoglobin mm-hmm. helps. It's, I think the biggest fields, and if you look at some of the data from Jim Moore from Connecticut, it's that lower threshold. Um, as I'm staring at the top and the etno numbers right now, using those restrictive guidelines, you know, how many of us are comfortable at a hemoglobin of seven in a 30, you know, that 31 to 32 week mm-hmm. baby who's three or four weeks old with a reticulous eye count of two to three and it's seven and a half or it's seven. Yeah, it really makes on. you start to itch. Almost, yeah. Right? And then there's the whole <laughs> transfusion associated you know, neck, mm-hmm. got the neck, yeah. uh, necrotizing the I always forget the transfusion associated, sorry, intestinal injury. And it's sort of like how, you know, that has kind of fallen off. We don't see it as much. And I think, you know, that's why I had a presentation a couple of years ago, looking specifically at that, where, where do you sort of draw that line is when is it dangerous or not? And when you're giving Mm -hmm. blood and then you get that, you know, what they saw was that hemoglobin less than it was eight and a half when you gave blood, they actually had decreased perfusion in the intestines. 
the initial couple of hours right after. And that's where the whole feeding thing comes into play. So we, you know, use that data and we developed part of our transfusion guidelines. We also have feeding guidelines after the transfusions. So, you know, if the hemoglobin's over eight and a half, we pretty much start full feeds again, you know, within a couple of hours after the transfusions. If it's less than eight and a half, we do a little bit of a pause, but they're still back on full feedings within about 24 hours. But it's that little bit of a gap in that six hours. So if you're if you're interested in transfusion data, I think it's number one. I think it'd be really good to have a correlation between what is an acceptable reticulocyte count at the lower mm-hmm. thresholds. Like where are you comfortable? So like almost like a uh, you know we have these bilirubin prediction curves. What would be a great mm-hmm. uh, anemia curve? So if you're eight and the retic is six you're safe. If you're eight and the retic mm-hmm. is two, mm-hmm. consider transfer. You know, I think that would be an right. awesome thing to have sort of a nomogram by retic and lower threshold numbers. And then again, looking at what is too low and too dangerous for any baby. I think that's still the verdict. We know that probably long-term neurologically, the babies are okay, but what about the acute? And I think that would be the two mm-hmm. areas I'd really look at. That data that you're mentioning about the, the perfusion and the hemoglobin of Eight. Can you, when, when was that published? I'm, Oof, I'm... That I don't know. Um, it was, so Jim Moore is a friend of mine, but he's the, the sort of chair and head of uh, Connecticut neonatology and children's right. hospitals. And he came down and gave a talk and it was, he, there was nearest data looking at intestinal flow mm-hmm. at the lower hemoglobin thresholds. Um, I cannot tell you the exact publication. I'd have to contact him to get the exact no. Numbers, no worries. Uh, data. But it, it basically showed that it, it, it may have been an animal model. I cannot remember. Uh, but basically, when the hemoglobin was less than eight and a half, when they what you actually looked at was intestinal flow and the mm-hmm. blood flow actually decreased like in the first six hours after the transfusion. So it's like if all of a sudden you have decreased perfusion and you're giving feedings, it was short of showing you the potential model of why Mm. some of these kids got neck totalis after transfusions. But when the hemoglobin was over eight and a half, then they didn't see this. So it was just kind of shedding a little bit of light of why sometimes some of these kids get these devastating injuries. Um, I think I have it here. Um, It is a November 2013 paper in transfusion. Um, Red blood cell transfusion-related necrotizing enterocolitis in very low birth weight infants, a near-infrared spectroscopy investigation. Um, And then just so everybody has it for their records, um, I think the, the cutoff of eight... Um, comes from the 2016 JAMA paper, Association of Red Blood Cell Transfusion, Anemia, and Necrotizing Enterocolitis in Very Low Birth Weight Infants. Yes. And that, I think, really helped. That helped us sort of do our guidelines a lot, too. And that's why I had him come, because I knew he was interested in it. And it just sort of shut a little bit light. It's not saying, again, I don't, is there this perfect correlation of blood transfusions and neck? No, I think we've proven that there isn't. Um, so that you don't have to stop feeds for 24 hours, this and that for every kid that gets blood. Right. Uh, but yeah, it just it helps the, a little bit in those high risk kids. Mm-hmm. Severe anemia cutoff of eight. Eight. Thank you. I yeah. used eight. I think, I think we used eight and a half to be safe for our guidelines. <laughs> so <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, this was this was tremendous. Daphna, anything else that you want to ask Dr. Saxon House? Uh, no, we love having people on and, and talking to us about, you know, their areas of expertise. Um, and so we really appreciate your time. We know you're busy. Sure. You, Dr. No, Saxon my House. pleasure. No, thank you so much. Have a good day. All right. You too. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.